Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Mick and Jake. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Mick. Welcome back to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. I'm joined for this episode by my co-host, Jake Gunderson, and Instagram's MVP of iOS, Greg Hill. Now, just before we get into this, I do want to apologize if the audio is a little different for this episode, but Greg and I are actually both at iOS Dev UK, and Greg is using a top-quality mic, but he's connected to the 3G network, and I'm connected to the campus's Wi-Fi network, but I aren't using uh, a mic that is as good as Greg's. So if we sound a little bit off, that's why. But it's only for this episode, so I'm sure we'll all survive. Now, Greg, I've put 20 minutes up on the board. What would you like to talk about? Yeah, thanks, Mick. I wanted to get back to basics and talking about iOS and go back to the foundations and talk about views and layers. It's something I've been dealing with a little bit, uh, not in terms of layout, layout a little bit, but just views and layers and rendering and that kind of thing. So I thought we could go back and talk a little bit about how stuff shows up on our little screens on iOS. So view layout is usually, a, I think, a pretty complicated matter, right? There are many parts to it. A lot of it has to be done on the main thread. You have a lot of performance bottlenecks. And I think a lot of the talks that we've heard today at the conference, Mick, have to do with uh, performance and views and layout and that kind of thing. So I think that it is a big key to getting that kind of 60 frames per second performance that everyone wants to get. And I think understanding views and layers, how they all fit together, can help you optimize performance and understand things like animation and open the door to all kinds of other cool bits of API that you can find in layers like AV Player Layer and OpenGL and Metal and all kinds of things for high-performance graphics and lots of interesting things. So it's layers all the way down, and that's a bit of what I want to talk about. Just before we kick off on that, I want to interrupt you straight away. Can you explain, since we're going back to basics, two things really. One, why UI rendering has to be done on the main thread? And secondly... Um, why 60 frames per second is like the magic number? Oh, good questions. The main thread one, I'm not sure I have a thorough technical explanation, but UIKit is not thread safe, I guess is the short answer. And so uh, usually when you set up your own queue, like a dispatch queue, you set it up as a serial queue, right? So if you queue up five things, one, two, three, four, five, then that's the order they'll run. You can also have, I think, a concurrent queue where you don't, you have no idea who knows when these things will be dispatched. So since the main thread is a serial queue, and you're doing drawing, and you have you know multiple things accessing properties and view properties and text and things like that, you want to make sure that they're all done on the same thread so that reads and writes are also sort of serialized in the queue. Does that sound right? I think so, yeah. I, mean, I would agree with that. Yeah. yeah, so that's the idea behind it. So it's like one of those tricky bugs sometimes, like if you're not on the main thread and you you know set the property or something like that, uh, you change a text label, then it's like sometimes it'll work, and sometimes it'll, it won't, or you set a color, and sometimes it works. And so it's one of those tricky things. It's, a, uh, it's not like setting a views frame not on the main thread will never work. That's one of those tricky bugs, right? It sometimes works, it sometimes doesn't. So that's the idea behind that. I think it just has to do with kind of order of operations and making sure things are accessed correctly. And so the main thread is the place to do that. That's also historical reasons, right? The original iPhone was a single processor, single core, so it was like... Well, it's a, you know we don't have multiple cores anyway, so let's just do it all in the main thread. But now that we live in the multi-core world, it's um, becoming more of a concern. And so it's a little bit unfortunate about the way UIKit is designed now that we're here in the future. 
And for the 60 frames per second, that's just kind of the, the refresh rate of the screen, I think, is 60. It updates 60 times a second. So 60 times a second, it'll say, hey, I need a frame to display. And it'll show a frame. And then I believe that's 16 milliseconds per frame, if I have my math right. Then in another 16 milliseconds, it'll say, hey, I need another frame, please. And so if you take fewer than 16, actually less than that, but if you take fewer than 16 milliseconds, you'll always have an updated frame to show the user. If you take longer than 16, it'll say, hey, can you give me a frame? It'll wait. It'll say, you didn't give me anything, so I guess I'll just show the previous frame until you tell me otherwise. And then you'll get sort of stutters in your app. Uh, you'll notice it a lot with scrolling. When you scroll through an app that isn't written correctly, then you'll see like the app kind of stutters, and it scrolls, and it stops, and it starts it again. And so that's the idea behind getting smooth scrolling and performance, is uh, making sure you keep up with that 60 frames per second. So going back to the views and the layers, just going back a little bit to um, Mac OS, Mac OS 10, or whatever you want to call it back in the day, where we had NS View, and it wasn't until 2007, that was Mac OS 10 Leopard, 10.5, where they introduced core animation on the Mac. And you'll notice 2007 is just a year before the uh, iPhone was released, right? And so they introduced core animation to Mac OS, and they said, hey, here's this cool way to do animation. And then the iPhone was released the following year. And then they say all of our views, UI views, will always have a core animation layer or a CA layer behind it. And they said that's going to be sort of the backing store that handles the rendering. It's going to be animation sort of all the way down. Whereas on the Mac, that wasn't always the case. And it was like, well, if you want to add a core animation layer, you can do it. But iOS was built with it right from the start. So I think that's kind of a, a cool thing and why the user interface of iOS is so, so performant and so kind of natural seeming. And people really like the UI, I think, because it had kind of animation built in from the start. So the layer is really just, um, they usually call it like a backing store. It's the backing thing behind a view. So it handles like drawing. If you've done anything with core animation, then you know that um, you know you have a Bezier path and you can do a fill and set the color and draw all kinds of custom things, then uh, that's all done on the sort of layer level. And then the view on top of it, um, some people think of the view as like a thin wrapper, right? So you have the layer, which is like, I'm actually scribbling something down on a piece of paper. And then the view is like a clear plastic sheet I put on top. And then the view is what handles uh, like user interaction, touch events and gestures and swipes and things like that. And so you can, make things a little bit more efficient, you could say, if you say, I have this very fancy drawing, but nobody's going to tap on it. So I'm just going to do it all on a layer, and then you can get some performance increases there because you don't have the extra overhead of having a view. But for the most part, we always, I think we always have views, and of course, they're always backed by layers. And maybe some things that people have already done with core animation or with layers are things like setting the corner radius, right? If you want to have rounded corners, or another trick is if you set the corner radius to... I think half of, if you have like a square and you set the corner radius to like half of the width, then you get a circle. I think that's a trick for drawing circles. Uh, you can do things like masks and uh, shadows and transforms. All that stuff is done on the layers. So I think people are pretty familiar with that kind of thing when they're doing those kind of small visual effects. Uh, but of course, the bigger thing, as the name suggests, with uh, layers is animations because it is a CA layer or a core animation layer, right? And so you can do all kinds of things with animations. And I remember when I was editing uh, our colleague Marin's uh, Animations by Tutorials book, he has a little note in there saying, like, we have view animations, right? You have UI view, animate with duration, and you can do it that way. Or you can do it on the layer and use the CA animation API, which is a little bit more maybe C-like. It kind of more feels like more like a C-based API. 
And you can do a lot of the same things, right? Move this box from left to right or scale this thing up or whatever. And he had a note in there saying, if you can use UI view animations, then use them because they're easier. And if you want to do something really custom, like with keyframes or something, then you can drop down to the layer level. So I think in a lot of cases, the sort of view side of it, again, just using a UI view, UI view animations is kind of the way to go um, just for ease of use. But if you need to, I think it's nice to understand the lower level and how to do custom things with layers and with uh, layer animations. I have yeah. a question for you, Greg. So if I think most of us, uh, and especially uh, probably new developers, you start with views partly because every control, you know, basically is a view. Like everything in Interface Builder, you're used to views, right? And mm -hmm. so... Other than maybe some of the specialty layers, like if you want to do a metal or an OpenGL layer, or like you mentioned earlier, if you want to do an AV player layer, in those cases, you'll use a layer because you have to. But yeah. outside of those places where the, the only API available to do a certain task is through dropping down to the layer, when mm -hmm. is it appropriate for someone to, to drop down? Because I think in general, we probably don't do it as often as we should because we, especially, again, for newer developers... Uh, you're just plugging along using views and, and you don't necessarily know it's too slow or whatever. Like what are like some of the like clues that it's time to look deeper into the CA layers and, and maybe switch some of your views into layers or whatever? Yeah, personally, I find that I will just run into a limitation. Like I'm doing a UI view animation and I'm like, oh, I want it to be a certain way or I wish I could customize this timing a little bit more and give it some keyframes or something like that. And I'll find that when the API doesn't do what I need anymore, then I'll be like, ah, it's time to drop down. So that's kind of a natural way. Again, following our friend Marin's advice of sticking with the kind of easy way, the simple way, and only dropping down when you need to. So I just find necessity is really the best kind of yardstick for me. I guess if there's obvious performance issues, then you say, this is too slow. Maybe I can consider um, consolidating these layers together. There are some options about um, when to rasterize a layer. So if you have a very complicated layer with all kinds of drawings on top of drawings on top of drawings, then there is an option to rasterize it and say, okay, flatten this, kind of like in Photoshop where you flatten down the layers. And you can say, kind of flatten this into like a bitmap and then render it. So it does the compositing work once and then render it. That has some other possible issues if you're like animating things. But there are a lot of extra options like that. So if you're running into issues with the API doesn't do what you want it to, or you are running into obvious performance issues, then I think that's kind of the time to drop down to layers. But I wouldn't recommend like, I'm starting a new app, I'm just going to do all of the, everything in layers, you know, just because I feel like it. I don't think that would be the, uh, the way to go. But you did mention other times where you might use layers. So I was going to ask both of you if there was a CA layers subclass that you are particularly fond of or you've used or you think is cool. Um, I don't know how much you guys have used layers recently in uh, recent memory because I'm kind of springing this on you, but is there a layer that you have used recently that you thought was pretty cool or useful? Well, I do a lot of um, OpenGL. I'm not as much metal yet, but I, I, I do a lot of graphics stuff. And so I use the, I use the CA uh, Eagle layer all the time. Um, and then I'll, I also do a lot with AV Foundation. And so, um, you know, if you're doing camera capture, there's a layer to just get the feed right from the camera. Or if you're doing, um, if you're playing a video, then there's another layer to display, you know, a video files without having to um, necessarily handle all the data, all the individual frame data yourself. The layer will just handle that for you. And because it's a layer, you can do all kinds of cool layer stuff with it. So you can, you know, like you mentioned before, you can do all the transforms, but you can also 
jump into scene kit and use a CA layer as a texture inside of scene kit. So if you wanted to, you could play a video on the side of a cube or something like that. Um, so those are the fun ones for me because you can do all kinds of cool. If, if it's a CA layer in, in many cases, the API, there's a, cause under I, my understanding is under the surface CA layers are basically uh, open jail or metal textures. And so in any of these graphics frameworks, there, there are often API translations where you can just use a CA layer in a similar way where you use a texture. And that means that opens up all kinds of cool, fun stuff you can do. Yeah. How about you, Mick? Well, I'm, I'm quite fond of layers because the very first app that I shipped on the App Store back in 2010 made heavy use of layers. It was very visual and uh, required a lot of performance because obviously back then the hardware was nowhere near as performant as it is what we've got today. And I wanted to make heavy use of things like drop shadows, uh, especially on text, which you get for free in CA text layer, uh, which you don't necessarily get on a label, UI label. Um, and then I was doing a lot of scrolling uh, using a carousel, open source carousel view by Nick Lockwood, uh, rather than, because that was sort of before we got UI collection view and you couldn't really bend UI table view the way that I wanted it to go, um, which meant that I had to implement my sort of own reuse and dequeuing process and that that was far more performant using ca layers because i didn't need the uh, the interaction directly with the layers themselves because the carousel view took care of the the interaction and told me which item was being tapped in the same way that say ui table view does but i wanted that to scroll at 60 frames per second and again i wanted things like rounded corners drop shadows but done in a performant way and obviously using a combination of what's offered on CA layers and sort of rasterizing and all that kind of stuff that you get for free out of the box, I was able to deliver something that, you know, was very performant. So, and that was my first sort of experience in shipping something. So I wanted it to be as good as possible. Uh, so yeah, lots of layer work. Okay, cool. I was looking around at the APIs at some of the recent ones and there is a um, CA metal layer and it's pretty simple. You kind of ask it for a texture, you use metal render into that, and then that's it. You're done. And then there all is also the eagle layer for OpenGL. And I was just curious, Jake, how exactly does that work? Once you, because the it, there just seems to be one property, kind of similar to metal, where you say you can get like the drawing dimensions, but then it says the eagle layer conforms to a protocol where you can use all the OpenGL calls. So does that mean like OpenGL draw whatever, and all those calls you just call them on the eagle layer directly? Can you can you just briefly say how that works? Yeah, so um, I think well, so. When you set up an OpenGL context, um, it, it connects to the. I can't remember exactly how it connects, but it connects to the the CA Eagle layer. And so, essentially, anything you want to draw to the screen actually draws to the Eagle layer. So anytime anytime you see OpenGL content rendered on screen, it's actually being rendered into a CA Eagle layer, and then that Eagle layer is part of whatever hierarchy. So I mean, like literally every like Cocos 2D, every graphics framework you've seen, any OpenGL app, that they're all using ultimately um, an Eagle layer, and that's kind of boilerplate. So like even people they've used graphics a lot, usually they haven't had to set that up because they just get it from whatever framework they're using. But it's just like it's just like somewhere in your app there needs to be this layer. That's your ego layer so that when you draw in OpenGL, when you call, you know, draw uh, triangles or whatever, um, it, it, that's where it goes. So. Okay. Okay. Got it. I, I don't do any kind of high performance graphics stuff. So I was just browsing through the uh, class documentation, the headers and thinking, how does, how does all this work? So I put a note down to ask you about that in particular, but all right. I guess one of the things that we should talk about before we move on uh, differences between UI view and, and CA layer 
uh, one of the things that you get for free with UIView that you just get no help with whatsoever with CA layout is layout because the layers don't work with auto layout and obviously Apple's done a big push towards adaptive layout and auto layout. Um, so, you know, to go back to you, Greg, uh, sort of what, what do you think about that? Because obviously, I mean, as you said, in some of the talks that we've had at the conference, we've looked at the performance hit as well that comes along with using things like auto layout. But then the trade-off or the acceptable trade-off in most cases is the, the ease of use and the, you know, being able to not have to calculate your own layout recs and apply them at the right callback points in the in the render cycle and that kind of stuff but obviously all that is is taken away from you when using layers yeah for sure i mean i remember when the retina devices came out and then <laughs> there were all kinds of scaling issues because the layers will often take pixel dimensions whereas um, with views we're used to using points and so back when the pixel was a point it was pretty easy and then later on that gets into all kinds of you get into all kinds of trouble um, with that but yeah as you mentioned the layout system is more like on the view side of it and the CA layer really is just drawing, right? It's like, I'm going to draw this texture, this circle, this image that you gave me, whatever. And how big the layer is, is kind of your business up the chain somewhere. I'm just like a big drawing surface where I'm going to draw this as big as I need to. And it's up to you to sort of tell me how big to get. So there are some ways to help out with that. Uh, I just wanted to mention the, a little bit of the API for UI view. Um, like you mentioned, Mick, and then since they're backed by a layer, you can say, by default, you get a CA layer. But then as Jake mentioned, there are other things like an AV player layer. So you can tell a UI view, don't use a CA layer, use an AV player layer because I want to play a video. Or, you know, use an eagle layer or use a metal layer. So setting the backing for a view is just the way that you can do it. Uh, I just also want to mention there are some other things like shape layers and someone mentioned text layers and scroll layers that you're probably kind of using indirectly shapes, text, scrolling, and so on. And then there are other things like emitter layers and gradient layers and replicator layers for just drawing cool stuff. Uh, but also going back to something you mentioned, Mick, about the layouts, uh, one of the talks that we had at the conference here was covering async display kits. So I just wanted to take 30 seconds or something at the end here to just mention that um, that's pretty cool because it adds sort of another layer of abstraction saying, I have a node, which is you know a view or a table cell or whatever, and you can access the view, you can access the layer, or you can set a flag and say, only make this a layer. So then it will actually handle and wrap that for you. All you need to do is set that property to say layer only, and then it will drop the UI view part of it and do all of the rendering with just a layer. So it's pretty cool to be able to, I've tried this, you can just switch that flag on and off and see what the performance difference is. And it's just very easy to see how that works. Of course, Async Display Kit is a whole beast unto itself. So I'm not saying you should just go and adapt it, but it's just a nice um, demonstration to see what the difference is between views and layers because they do abstract that away and kind of hide that from you. Um, all right, Greg, uh, our t your time is up. Thanks for uh, kind of refreshing our memory with, with CA layers and kind of giving us a chance to maybe think about some of the ways we could and should be using layers that we're not. Um, but before we move on, we are going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsor. Hired is the platform for the best iOS developer jobs. Candidates registered with Hired receive an average of five offers on the platform, all from a single application. Companies looking to hire include Facebook, Uber, and Stripe. With Hired, you get job offers and salary and or equity before you interview, so you don't have to waste your time interviewing for jobs you might not end up wanting. And of course, it's totally free to use. Plus for you, our listeners, you will receive a $2,000 bonus from Hired if you find a job through their platform. 
just for signing up using the show's exclusive link, hired.com forward slash Ray. Thanks again to Hired for sponsoring this episode of the RayWendlet.com podcast. All right, Mick, uh, you're, you have 20 minutes. Your time starts now. Okay, so I wanted to talk about something that was announced at WWDC that I it, sort of I've been keen to talk about even before then. Really, like we had an unofficial way to implement what I'm going to talk about, and at WWDC we got a, an official way, which is great. But I wanted to kind of hold off until I'd had a chance to dive a little bit deeper and sort of have a poke around. And luckily, I've been able to do that more recently. And also, one of the talks at the the conference we're at now. Um, also touched on this and that's um xcode well xcode plugins although you know as you'll see they're actually called extensions now but just to give you a little bit of background for anybody that's not familiar with this or might sort of case oh, hang on xcode plugins i have no idea what you're talking about you know this is apple software like you can't write plugins for it uh well that's not oh well, that's not been the case uh really for you know the past few years um Somebody, I'm not sure who it was, uh, a long time ago discovered that Xcode had a private um, API uh, that allowed you to sort of, I'm going to say inject for want of a better word, but sort of arbitrary code bundles that then, you know, you could use as plugins. Just so it, there, would, there was a plugin framework within Xcode, but it was private and, the, you know, you could get in there and sort of inject your code and, and provide extra functionality. And over time, a lot of these plugins did start to appear to the point where Alcatraz was released. Now, if you don't know what Alcatraz is, it was a plugin manager for Xcode. Itself was a plugin because it ran within Xcode, but it allowed you to, um, as a consumer of plugins, search for plugins, look what was available, and also as a developer to to sort of publish your plugin to a wider audience rather than people sort of having to find your GitHub repo or you know your website. You could deliver it through Alcatraz, which was great. Um, but you know there was a lot of work involved in writing these plugins a lot of it was trial and error there was no sort of way to robustly test your plugin uh, the way that you had to install it was you'd write some code you'd compile it you'd then have to restart xcode to get xcode to launch that plugin uh, if you got a crash you got no debug information that that kind of stuff so it wasn't for the faint-hearted really like the people that wanted to do this you really had to be motivated to do it but luckily a lot of people were and some really good plugins came out we got to a point where because this was such hard work um a template was created by delissa mason who we've mentioned before on the podcast um and this was available on github and this kind of set everything up for you so that you could download this template and you know create a xcode plugin uh, from this template and it sort of eased you into it a bit gently than what went before again this all worked fine and and you know we we kind of knew that we were doing something sort of underhand if you like there was no you know this was a private api we were using but apple never really sort of gave any signals that it was going to go away uh or that we were doing something wrong or you know any kind of but there was also no official way that and they didn't come out and support this what what was so when we got xcode 8 in the summer uh, that is now code signed so part of the problem before this was that xcode wasn't code signed which meant that you know things could be injected into it in the way that plugin developers were doing but also in the way that these guys that were perhaps doing things that were a little bit more uh, suspicious and underhand were doing so apple took steps to resolve that by signing uh, xcode going forward but what that actually meant then 
for plugin developers was that the plugin architecture that they were using before no longer worked, which meant that it had the knock-on effect that Alcatraz became, you know, redundant. I think Apple recognized the need for plugins and that there was this little ecosystem that had developed and you know like i say like some of the tools that came out some of the plugins that people had written were really useful plugins sort of you know we all have a love-hate relationship with xcode some of the stuff it does it does fantastically other other things it does you know drive you crazy uh, i remember one of the one of the plugins that i liked it was the fix it button and this was um felix kraus the guy behind uh, Fastlane, released this plugin which disabled the fix it button so you, you know like when you get that when you um open a project and say it's in a previous version of, of the Xcode uh, project format and you would immediately get a, a drop down at the top that would say like we need to well we recommend that you make this change and there's a big button that said fix it or you know there might have been one with a provisioning profile where it would say like this is not the right provisioning profile you click fix it and inevitably it would screw up whatever it was they was trying to do and so we had this plugin that disabled the fix it button um just to remove any temptation to ever press it mick i know several large companies with lots of developers with complicated provisioning profiles who installed xcode with that plugin so okay. that people would stop messing <laughs> it up so yes very useful so so uh, just going back then um apple obviously saw this need and announced at wwdc this year that um they are now giving us tools to write xcode extensions so not quite plugins, uh, extensions as in, you know, the extension uh, functionality that we are already familiar with. It's a little bit odd when you think about it because you, your extension, as with all other extensions, need a host app. So you have to write a host or you have to deliver a host app which contains your extension, which is then going to be loaded into Xcode. It's a little bit, gray, like the, it's a bit of a gray area as to whether or not you're going to be able to deliver a empty host app because all you are delivering really is your plugin because Apple have made it clear that you can distribute your extensions uh, via the Mac App Store. But obviously that means that they have to come as part of a Mac app and whether or not... I know when uh, Watch uh, apps were uh, originally delivered as, as extensions, Apple wouldn't let you submit an empty iOS app uh, to then deliver a WatchOS app. Your, your iOS app had to deliver some sort of functionality i know they've relaxed that a little bit now and hopefully so greg and i were talking about this earlier and greg has hopes as well that they will have relaxed or will have learned from that experience if you like and you know some like the people that did the watch os guys will have talked to you know let's go guys and you know, hopefully everybody's learned from that and we will be able to deliver uh, empty host apps uh, but yet that is the way that you deliver these but they're dead just as easy as, you know, other extensions to set up. So, you know, you've got your, your host app, you add an extension target. This will create a couple of files for you. One is for uh, the extension itself. And this is uh, a, a class that must conform to XC source editor extension. Um, one of the things that this uh, protocol um, provides is the extension did finish launching method, which allows you to do any setup. Now, one thing of note with these is that the uh, extensions are loaded when you launch Xcode, not when you actually run that, that command. Uh, and we'll get on to what a command is in a moment. Uh, but what this means is that, th or the reason behind this is because uh, Apple want your commands to sort of appear almost instantaneous. So any setup that you need to do to initialize your command needs to be done 
when Xcode is loaded, not when the user interacts with, with the command. And then the second file is where sort of the meat of the extension lives. Um, this is a, a class that must conform to the XC editor command protocol. And basically, like a command is a one-to-one -one mapping with an entry in the in the menu bar. So all your extensions appear in the editor menu right at the bottom. And um, each command that you add, and you can add multiple commands, uh, appear in this as a menu item. And then when the user clicks on that menu item, it just runs a method in the uh, class that conforms to XCSource editor command protocol. Um, and what this... Uh, the, the, the command that's run is performed with invocation and it passes in a XC source editor command invocation and the completion handler which you call when you're finished and if there was any problems you can pass uh, an error into that completion handler but what that command invocation gives you or the, the main essence of what it gives you is a buffer and that buffer contains a text for the open file in the source editor so the extensions that we get at the minute are confined exclusively to source editor extensions. Makes sense in some part because it allows you to do things like uh, linting, like converting text, like uh, you can do things, and we'll get into this, you know, I want to speak to you, Greg, and you, Jake, and get some ideas of what you think, you know, would be a good application of this in its current state. But um, what, it, what it means you can't do is that these extensions um, are... Well, they're sandboxed to begin with, so they have no um, outside access uh, unless you put in the right entitlements. You can't manipulate the project structure, so you can't create new files, you can't delete existing files or change files or anything like that. There's no automatic key binding, so you can say, um, you know, install my extension and then bind it to the key command K or whatever. Um, that has to come, like you can bind a, a, a keyboard shortcut to your uh, extension, but it has to be driven from the user. The user has to do that. Um, you can't do things like emit warnings. So uh, one of the things Ellen talked about in her session was that she would really like uh, to do some linting and then provide warnings back in the uh, source code editor to say, you know, this is wrong or you may want to change this. But you can't do anything like that. Basically, all we have in this first initial release of Xcode source editor extensions is um, when it when the command runs you're given the contents of the currently open file um, and along with that you're given some metadata which includes the ranges of any selected text the uh, interestingly enough uh, whether or not the uh, person using has set up uh, tabs or spaces is their preferred indentation um, they, the width so you know four spaces two spaces whatever but that's really all that you're given. And then you can take some uh, operation on this and you can update that buffer so you can take text out, you can replace text. Um, and then you ha and then you know you're finished, you call your completion hander and then that adds it back to, to Xcode. So some of the examples that I've seen, this is one of the most curious parts really. Like Apple obviously decided to take this direction and looked at all the things that they could do in uh, Xcode and provide and obviously they wanted to start somewhere and this is where they've started to or chosen to start but it is quite curious because as far as I can see it and the discussions I had with Ellen and some other guys that went to that session was that it's a very finite uh, number of applications and you know I mentioned LinkedIn um, 
but most of the things that uh, have appeared online. So one of the downsides of this is there's very little documentation from Apple. Uh, this is all wrapped up in a framework called Xcode Kit, and I'll put a link in the show notes. There is a API reference, but there's no sort of getting started guide or like like there was when they first brought out uh, app extensions, and it was like here's how you create an extension, here's how you add it to you know your scheme, here's how you run it, all that kind of stuff. Um, there's none of that. You've just got an API reference, and there is a WWDC session, but it's that's it's kind of encompassed within a wider topic of what's new in Xcode. It's not like just dedicated to that specific topic. So you kind of have to dig around to find out um, to find out what's going on. But yeah, I mean, Jake, I know when I mentioned this topic to you, you were quite excited to see this and, and were wondering about the, the application. So I was wondering what sort of thoughts you had on it. Yeah, so the main reason I was excited when I first heard about this new feature is that I don't use extensions in Xcode. And the reason I don't is that every time I update Xcode, the, it's too complicated. Sometimes the extensions need to be updated. Um, it just, the, the third party and the kind of loose coupling nature of extensions in Xcode, it's more trouble than it's worth. Now, I think, I think Greg's example of a large organization that wants to kind of limit the number of choices that the individual Xcode users have, that makes a lot of sense. But as a solo developer, I just, just looking for like utilities that help me. Some of the things I like are the, I, I don't use them, but th- there are those apps that you can go through and set a bunch of stylistic rules up. And it will run through and apply them like, you know, how many spaces do, do you put, you know, do a method, do the opening bracket of a method, does that happen on a new line or on the same line? All those like, you know, they have, those apps like they have that 50 or 60 decisions and then it just goes through and like formats all your code according to those stylistic things. That seems like the perfect application for this API. Is that, am I thinking right? Yeah, I mean, that's what we would call Alinte. So, okay. I mean, that's definitely, yeah. what, I mean... We use one uh, with the Ruby stuff we've been doing recently called Rubo, RuboCop, um, which not only does uh, stylistic things like that, uh, which is, you know it is based around a style guide, and it will tell you, you know, if if the style guide says you know everything should be two two space indent and you indent with a you know a tab or four spaces, it will throw a warning and tell you exactly the line that's wrong and that kind of stuff, which is really helpful. But it also uh, does a little bit of static analysis and it looks at. For instance, the version of Ruby that you're using and um, like changes in recent versions and it may, will make suggestions. So if there's a new, cleaner way of doing something or a more performant way of doing something in your code, it will make a suggestion. Say, you know, since Ruby 2.2, uh, you've been able to do what you're doing here this way and you're using 2.3, which means it's compatible. So, you know, you might want to think about making that change. In In the context of this API, how would those suggestions present? Would you just have to add like commented text to the to the code or how would you present those suggestions so i think that that's one of the challenges so i think that that you know that is one way that you could do it you know is that you could add comments in to say this is wrong this is the reason it's wrong this is the suggested fix or <laughs> depending on how much you trust the author like you could just go ahead and make those changes um, and, you know, this is the kind of stuff that's sprung up. So we've got a couple of screencasts on the site around this, uh, one on static extensions and one on dynamic extensions, and I'll mention the difference of those two in a moment. The sample that you uh, that Sam provides in both those is, you know, it, you take a comment and you turn it into ASCII text. Um, the example Ellen gave in her, in her session was you could convert 
code comments um, between US and uh, UK spellings. So, like, she had some flavor without the U, color without the U, and then she ran this command and it went through and changed. And, you know, it was changing it in place and added the U's in where necessary. Um, And then there was another example I found online where where the author was looking for, uh, like, ASCII smileys, if you like, in comments and would change them to their emoji counterpart. So Mm. all the examples that we've seen so far are relatively sort of straightforward, are almost like toy implementations. Like, right. th- these are fun yeah, they to look at. They all do the comments, right? Well, well, that, that? well, yeah, so that's one thing, that they all they all work with the comments, and they are all kind of fun or silly or, you know, like, there is nothing that's come out that I've been able to find so far that is actually like a real-world application of how you would use this. Um, now, we've just talked about LinkedIn, and that came up quite a few times, and I think that probably is one way of doing it, but without the proper ability to provide feedback, you want, you don't want something to just go in and make changes. Like, it, as a, with most linters, they make suggestions, and then it's up to the, you know, the author of that code to implement them if they want that you know like you don't you don't want to write sort of a thousand lines of code and then run a command and have it all change and inevitably you know there will be things that break and um with with no proper way to provide feedback like it just seems a little bit of a like it, it shrinks down the application even more it sounds like we have no way of providing any other ui too like you don't you can't throw up your own dialog box of any kind no I mean, that was one of the questions in the session, and Ellen's recommendation was that you kind of, anything that you need to do via configuration or creating files, like, see if you can work that into the host app, um, so that, first off, you're not delivering an empty host app, but, like, that you do anything, configuration, like, all that kind of stuff in the host app, provide that functionality in there, and then like load that in the in the first class um, that has the uh, extension did finish launching callback in it. Do all your setup based on what was configured in the host app there, and then again, you know, use just interact with these these commands with again with no UI. Um, but again, yeah, it just seems incredibly incredibly um, limited because there's there's no way to provide any feedback if it fails. Either, unless you just, like you said, like append stuff to the text buffer that you're given. Yeah, I mean, I could see doing small refactoring, like changing a property to a private property or something like that, like something very like that uses the selection. I've selected this bit, I run the extension and it does some small change like that. But yeah, I do think a, I think providing like a warning or even better would be to pro- uh, the ability to do a fix it like Xcode does in yeah. the left side providing a fix it in it would you like to change it to this i think that would be really cool as a as an option well i mean one thing ellen did say right at the end of her um session was that she spoke with some of the apple engineers at wwc about this and they are very interested to hear about use cases and requirements from different developers and all that kind of stuff and this is this was very much like the starting point in perhaps the same way that siri kit is you know, that has a very sort of niche targeted audience, and I think this does as well. Um, but they did say, like, share what you want with us via radar, and then, you know, no promises, but, 
you know everything that that is t- you know we will take a look at everything that's submitted and then you know we can grow this out so that it does provide some more functionality but well, yeah so i mean it take four years like siri kit took to get here <laughs> yeah uh, well just the, what, the one thing that i should have mentioned earlier on that i didn't was that uh, these extensions do come with a full way to debug them uh, so when you run the extension so you select the extension scheme not the host app scheme you run it uh, just like uh, with ios extensions or mac app extensions you'll get prompted for which app to launch that extension with so you can select xcode from that list make sure you select xcode 8 though then it will start up a second instance of xcode uh, and you know this is the the debugging one because the icon is black and the little run bar at the top is black and then it will launch your extension within there and you can go and invoke it and then you can actually set breakpoints and things and do uh, you know log calls and all that kind of stuff in the one that you're developing. And when you interact with the debug one, um, it will sort of execute those breakpoints and do, do all that uh, print line and all that kind of stuff, just as it would if you were working with a you know a macOS app or an iOS app, which I thought was pretty cool because at least now there is some way that you can you can run them and you can debug them and you can step through your code and all that kind of stuff you can see what's happening uh, so at least that part has been thought out and that again would give you perhaps some uh, hope that this will be extended upon going forward because i've obviously put a lot of work into you know providing you with tools to be able to do that and because this is so restricted it would seem like that if that's all they give you then that work that they delivered would be like a little bit did put more thought into how you're going to debug it and what, what you can actually do with the extensions themselves. So it does give you a little bit of hope, but I just thought that was really cool and it's you know, something to definitely be aware of if you're going to take a look at these. All right, that is all the time that we have for this episode. Um, thanks again for joining us, Greg. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. As always, if you have any feedback or comments on the podcast, please get in contact with us via podcast at raywinderlich.com. Don't forget to leave your reviews on iTunes. Those help us out a ton. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you all next time. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, and don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.